The StoryCast is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, you love to read, but you don't have a lot of time. But what you do have is time in your car or mowing the lawn or rocking your kid to sleep. So get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audible.com slash storycast. It's immediately obvious how to make any kind of soft drink of flavoring, sugar, and carbonation. Colas are usually flavored with vanilla, cinnamon, lemon oil, and orange oil, with caffeine from cola nuts and color from caramel. There are lemon-lime drinks like 7-Up and Sprite and Mountain Dew that's flavored with orange juice. Grape Crush, Welch's Grape Soda, Concord Grapes. And how to make root beer? No, you just use root beer flavoring. Well, unless you're making real root beer. It's so much more complicated. And who doesn't love a good root beer? To make a good root beer, you follow mostly the same steps as making a real beer. So where exactly did root beer come from? I thought you'd never ask. Beer is widely believed to be accidentally invented during Mesopotamian times more than 5,000 years ago, while grains sitting in some liquid fermented in a warm clay pot. Gradually, the process was refined into a more or less calculated product suitable for popular mass consumption. But root beer, in contrast, required a conscious effort from the start and was in part developed by brewers out of the need for a non-alcoholic beverage that was suitable for children while drinking water was potentially a risky proposition. And in case you're wondering, homemade root beer that gets its carbonation from yeast fermentation in the bottle generally has about a quarter of a percent of alcohol. Scholars believe that root beer had its genesis in the early American colonies initially developed because of the lack of traditional beer making ingredients. Adventurous brewers blended herbs and barks with sweeteners like honey and tree saps to make root beer. Root beer gained its popularity during prohibition when many breweries turned to making this soft drink instead of the hard drink to stay afloat. The traditional flavor of old time root beer came from sassafras root, often paired with sarsaparilla root. However, in 1960, the FDA banned the use of sassafras in processed foods, including root beer, after it was found to cause cancer. So the other root beer ingredients, they include vanilla, ginger, licorice root, anise seed, birch bark, juniper berries, star anise, chiretta, yerba mate, dog grass, wild cherry bark, and the roots of burdock, yellow dock, dandelion, and spikenard. Then a select group of those elements combine to impart flavors of licorice, bitter, berry, mint, and a creamy goodness. And the process of creating a root beer is delicate and tedious alone. There's the sanitization, the heating, the brewing, the temperature holding, the cooling, the siphoning, the chilling, the carbonating, the conditioning, and then of course comes the popping of the cap and the sipping and the enjoying. So the next time you partake in a good root beer, a real one, not one of those syrupy phonies from the fountain machine, the next time you pop open a Boylan's or a Stewart or a Hosmer or a Berghoff or a Jones, think about what really went into that bottle. And it sat there, independent pieces, yet all together on the edge of something amazing. This time on the StoryCast, tales of people, places, and ideas at one point bottled up and where they are now. I should ask you first, do you want to name yourself or do you want to stay anonymous in this? Uh, I should probably stay anonymous. Cool, okay. You can, we can, I can be AJ. 
Okay, okay, that's good. Hello, I'm AJ, and I am a flight attendant at a major airline, and I have been for a little over eight years. This story is not about this story. It's about the story behind the story. Have you ever had a bad day? A bad job? A bad idea? A bad moment that all ended up wrong, but somehow gloriously was kind of right? Well, unless you were living under a rock in 2010, this is a true story that most people have probably heard before on the news or social media. This is the story of an employee very much bottled up and it's as much a sensational tale as it is a whodunit. So we'll go over the facts and the incident from different sides. And then I'll ask my friend AJ, a flight attendant, to help us pop open the cork and really see what's hiding inside. On August 9, 2010, JetBlue Airlines Flight 1052 was en route from Pittsburgh to New York City. After the plane landed and before the passengers were able to deplane, Flight Attendant Steven Slater announced over the plane's public address system that he had been abused by a passenger and that he quit his job. He articulated to the passengers to go expletive themselves, grabbed two bottles of Blue Moon, deployed the escape chute, and slid down. Slater claimed that as the flight taxied to a stop, a passenger stood up too early to remove her bag from the overhead compartment. She had been instructed repeatedly to remain seated. Despite this, the passenger continued to remove the bag, and in doing so, she hit Slater in the head with the bag. When asked for an apology, the passenger responded with profanity. The Port Authority police concluded that Slater's initial account of the confrontation was fabricated. Investigators stated none of the dozens of passengers interviewed about the incident had corroborated his account. A passenger on the plane reported that Slater went onto the public address system and used his own profanities, concluding, I've been in this business 20 years, and that's it. I'm done. Then, of course, he activated the emergency inflatable slide and exited the plane. Later that day, Slater was arrested and charged with criminal mischief, reckless endangerment, and criminal trespass, to which he pleaded not guilty. The district attorney pursuing the case said Slater's actions were serious and could have killed or grievously injured anyone below the inflatable plastic chute. And although never corroborated, Mr. Slater's version of the incident includes a precipitating event that motivated his behavior, even if it didn't excuse his actions. So no matter what version you believe, what was going on in his head that day? Or for that matter, what's going on in the heads of all those thousands of flight attendants up there in the air, all day, every day, serving you and I, and opening our drinks, and throwing away our garbage, and playing playground monitor when we act like kindergartners. So to really understand the story, I asked AJ. So right off the bat, I mean, I think anyone, when they hear about someone in their industry finally responding with gusto to the things that you and everyone else in your profession faces every day, there's a piece of you that's like, yeah, good for you, man. But then you also kind of understand that this is what you signed up for. You knew you'd be spending the day with the public at their most stressed out. And people haven't been behaving since preschool. You've been with them all the time. You know, you remember kindergarten. Susie totally stuck gum in Karen's hair. It happens. 
and why we would expect them to behave when they're stressed out traveling away from home, perhaps visiting someone they don't want to, or doing a work trip that they didn't sign up for. You just can't have that expectation for people. That's unfair. So he's me, totally proud of him, absolutely jealous. The larger portion thought it was a little bit of a disservice to to most of us who do everything we can to remain calm and carry on. But just how serious is what Slater did? What's the deal with those evacuation slides that we hope to never see? So those slides, first of all, as soon as the plane lands and gets to the jetway, the, the, the operational goal is to get the airplane serviced and taken care of, checked on, everything done as quickly as possible and turned back around and leaving again. Planes don't make money on the ground, they make money in the air. So you want that all happening very quickly. With that said, there are all kinds of ground service personnel and equipment constantly parked underneath the plane. And it's difficult to see, it's the smallest window on board is the one at the flight attendant doors. It's difficult to see exactly what's going on underneath or nearby. With that said, just shooting that slide out, those are really powerful. They're fast, they're strong, and you don't know who you could possibly hit. If it was in the jetway, which I think he was very aware of the fact that he was over the tarmac, but it could pin someone to a wall and kill them. It's a very dangerous thing to do. It's very expensive. And, um, yeah, those slides, that's, that was a risky move. He's lucky there weren't caterers nearby. I think everyone can see how anyone else could snap. I mean, in the grocery line at the, at the store, we've all had that feeling. And uh, customer service is challenging. And it's not, I don't see it as getting any easier. I haven't noticed people getting more polite or respectful. Um, but that said, I can absolutely see where he's coming from. We have to sympathize with him. If you've done the job for more than 10 minutes, you're probably going to sympathize with them big time. I think we're also really supposed to be very good and patient about apologizing for things that are um, way beyond our control. So whether it was on the job description or not, what is the plight of the modern-day flight attendant? So I, I definitely think that the job seems to be getting harder and harder every passing year. Uh, planes are, they're cramming as many seats as they can on board. They're trying to sell every single seat. Americans are getting bigger. I, I don't mean that impolitely, but that's making seats more and more uncomfortable. And we're not making any extra room in the seats, obviously. Prices aren't really going up, so more and more people are traveling because it's cheaper than driving. I mean, you and I grew up taking road trips with our families. I don't really see many people doing that any longer. I see a lot of people on the airplane. And they're asking more and more of flight attendants. There's more people on board with more 
baggage than ever before and the same amount of flight attendants with the same amount of tools available to serve and give the best service they can. So it begs the question, when it all boils down, what is the life of the flight attendant? Is it the anachronistic Pan Am adventurer? Or is it frustrated cocktail waitress, pent up, ready to snap and deploy the chute? It does get frustrating because I think all of us did apply hoping to make travel more pleasant for the people who were forced to go out and travel for job, business, family, whatever means, and to make it enjoyable for those who had a trip they'd been looking forward to. And when we're falling short of what our career expectations were because the industry is changing, and we're falling short of what the passengers' expectations are because they've heard about the glamorous flights their grandparents went on, and they're sitting next to someone who's sweating in their pajamas, and <laughs> it gets uh, it gets frustrating on a lot of levels. And you don't go home and look at your paycheck and think, totally worth it. It's not going to happen in this career. <laughs> and... <laughs> And that's, that's okay, but sometimes it feels just like everyone feels, I'm sure, but sometimes it feels like it'd be nice if something would give, and you're not going to get that from the passengers. <laughs> so, Steven Slater, angry person acting out, or a case of the working class hero? Oh man, that's a great question. I, th- I think it's a little of both. I think that I think it was only a matter of time until somebody in the work group broke. I'm sorry it had to be him because I'm sure it's placed some hardships on his life. But it was uh, kind of nice for all the airline industry management to see all over just because it was going to happen. And I know that a lot of us have tried to identify some of the stresses that seem to be constantly piling up and frustrating us to our management and the leadership at our companies and of course they are doing like any person who's trying to make money and man when he did that there, there certainly was a piece of me that wanted to buy the t-shirts with the little cartoons of him jumping down the slide I get it and he's, he will always be a little bit of a hero. He's kind of that Robin Hood hero, or maybe someone a little grimmer than Robin Hood, but sort of, you know they're up to no good, but you're glad for it. Like Dexter. Mm, there you go. Somehow there's a PCU absolutely on board with what he's doing. Steven Slater agreed to a plea bargain in October 2010, in which he would plead guilty to the lesser of charges accept probation, receive drug testing, undergo counseling, and avoid prison. He also paid JetBlue $10,000 for restitution. He also appeared in a taped message apologizing for his actions. Later, Slater would also blame his actions on stress related to HIV-related health problems, as well as his terminally ill mother's health issues. It goes without saying that Slater was fired from JetBlue, but his 15 minutes of fame continued 
as he made Time Magazine's Top 10 Travel Moments of 2010, the Daily Mail's Top 5 Bizarre News Events, and the New York Times identified the situation as number six of the things that New Yorkers talked about that year. It was spoofed on NBC sitcom 30 Rock, in songs, and even Jimmy Fallon performed the ballad of Steven Slater on his late night show. Later that year, Slater would be recruited by San Francisco telecommunications company Talk To Me for their Mile High Text Club. So, right or wrong, malicious negligence, or a frustrated worker's fantasy. Regardless, for Steven Slater, those few seconds down the slide and on to the JFK tarmac must have been liberating, exhilarating. And after such a huff and tizzy, who wouldn't want a couple beers? Being bottled up is not just a condition for people. Places can find themselves mysteriously concentrated. Places can be on the verge, too. Places like McLeod, California. This piece was originally written by Jennifer Margulis and published in the Jefferson Monthly. Here's first-time StoryCast contributor Sheeni Parvez with the story. One cloudless night three years ago, 49-year-old Rhonda Hebert and her sister said goodbye to some friends at the American Legion and were walking down Main Street in McLeod, heading back to their house. They walked on for a few minutes in silence when suddenly, Hebert had an eerie feeling that someone was following them. She and her sister turned around and saw a big black bear walking down the middle of the street. He wasn't hungry, Hebert laughs as she sits outside the McLeod Mercantile, taking a break from her job as a clerk in the Sugar Pine Candy Shop to enjoy the unseasonably warm fall weather. He wasn't interested in eating us. She and her sister raise their arms above their heads to make themselves look as big as possible, and the black bear lumbered amiably by. Rhonda Hebert had just moved to McLeod from Fresno, California, and she counts the black bear among those who welcomed her to this unique Northern California town. Just a 10-minute drive east of Mount Shasta and only 85 miles from Southern Oregon, McLeod is a tiny town in the middle of a vast forest of white fir, red fir, sugar pine, Douglas fir, incense cedar, lodgepole pine, and other towering trees. It is reported to have a population of 1,343 year-round residents, according to the 2000 U.S. Census, though some locals think that's an exaggeration. My seven-year-old daughter and I have come to spend the weekend here in McLeod to discover the town and learn about its history, and to finally ride the Shasta Sunset dinner train after years of seeing the larger-than-life billboard advertisements while driving down I-5. We start late from Ashland, drive down the winding highway through huge elevation changes, past golden yellow shrub grass and hills as big as mountains. We pull into town after dusk on a Friday night in early fall and head for one of the only open restaurants, the River Grill and Bar. The quick clonk of pool balls hitting each other and the boisterous sound of people drinking at the bar greet us as we walk into this dimly lit rustic place. It's hot inside and most of the people at the bar are in their shirt sleeves. A couple in their 60s from the Netherlands having dinner at the next table tell us they've stopped in McLeod on a tour of Northern California because they read in their Dutch guidebook that it's a special place. 
My chicken salad is served on a bed of perky iceberg lettuce with pepperoncini, onions, and a few tired tomatoes. My daughter Athena gobbles down her chicken nuggets and minestrone soup and writes in her journal, she's taking notes too, that the restaurant is very, very fancy. We stay past bedtime so she can sketch the fascinatingly tacky lamp on our table, which has a plastic log house for a base, complete with a model railroad evergreen tree out front. It's so overheated in the restaurant that while Athena is drawing, I pull off my sweater, only to realize I'm only wearing a tank top. No worries, hun, the waitress who wears her hair in a long blonde ponytail says. You're in McLeod now, anything goes here. It's true, you might find anything in this tiny town which strikes me as a place full of contrasts and contradictions, seeking an identity. Quaint art galleries coexist alongside teenagers gunning their dragsters down the town's unusually wide streets, built to accommodate the lumber trucks that drove right through town to and from the mill. McLeod is a work in progress, a quiet town that has seen some fat times and some lean times, and that may be on the cusp of a renaissance, but then again, maybe not. It's a cross between Norman Rockwell and Northern Exposure, laughs Darlene Mathis. Three Asian tourists come into the restaurant she co-owns with her husband, the White Mountain Fountain, their cameras bumping against their winter coats. Relationships here are exaggerated. You know everyone deep. You know their quirks and their personalities. McLeod is a mountain community, Mathis continues. You're almost in survival mode here. A diminutive woman wearing tight jeans and high heels with long brown hair and stylish glasses, 47-year-old Mathis is one of the people on a mission to renovate McLeod, which was a company-owned town operated by the McLeod River Lumber Company until 1963. She and her husband, Kevin, along with their son, Tanner, and their dog, Whisper, moved to McLeod eight years ago after buying the McLeod Mercantile Building, which used to be the company's in-town headquarters. The Mercantile is a sprawling historic place that has almost 60,000 square feet on the inside and houses the newly renovated McLeod River Mercantile Hotel, where my daughter and I are staying, as well as the White Mountain Fountain, a jewelry store called Shasta Reflections, the Sugar Pine Candy Shop, a bookstore called the McLeod Book Gallery, Mountain Homes Realty, and several other businesses. Signs of new construction and renovation are everywhere. Mathis, who is an assistant architect in Sacramento and has worked for over 20 years on restoration and capital improvement projects, shows my daughter and me around the sprawling mercantile building. Signs of new construction and renovation are everywhere. Mathis, who is an assistant architect in Sacramento and has worked for over 20 years on restoration and capital improvement projects, shows my daughter and me around the sprawling mercantile building. She tells us it was originally built in 1899, but the lumber company kept adding to the building as they added logging camps in McLeod. Once the center of commercial life for the town, loggers and their families would come here to buy everything from groceries to shoes. If your house needed painting, the company would decide on the color, Mathis explains. They'd get the paint from the mercantile. They made the keys to all the houses here, too. Mathis points out the massive renovations already done. Transom windows and built-in booths unearthed from under layers of sheetrock, sunken ceilings restored to their original height, 
the original Douglas fir floor is sanded and polished and shining with new lacquer. And she walks us through what used to be the company-owned meat market that is now under construction to be turned into a bar slated to open this spring, aptly titled with the same name. After the meat market, we head over to McLeod Historical Museum, where 81-year-old Jimmy Bambino, who volunteers there, is enjoying the fall sunshine on a bench outside. Bambino tells me his parents were from Calabria, Italy, and that his dad first came to America in 1914, moving from New York City to Weed to Black Butte until finally settling down in McLeod. Born and raised in McLeod, Bambino was a freight agent at the railroad depot. The town was segregated when he was a kid. The Swedes and Norwegians, who usually held managerial positions at the mill, lived in one section. Italians like the Bambinos, who were usually mill workers, lived in what was then called Tucci Camp. Mexican workers lived in what was identified as Tortilla Flats on a company map. And the African-American mill workers lived in a separate camp. Bambino's been in McLeod through all of the town's changes and still remembers when milk from the company-owned dairy was delivered to his family's doorstep in glass bottles. In the wintertime when the weather was cold, he says, the milk would freeze and the cream on top would expand and pop the cap right off. He shows us some empty bottles in his museum, which is cluttered with donated artifacts. There are old-fashioned dolls, typewriters, handwritten letters, 19th century books and magazines, lumberjack equipment, black and white photographs, and more. Mathis shows us rather wistfully the enormous original register that was in the mercantile when she and her husband bought the building but ended up at the museum before they took possession. But tourists come to McLeod to enjoy the area's natural beauty more than the town's rich history. Just four miles east of the Mount Shasta Ski Park, McLeod sees a surge in tourism in the wintertime from people coming to ski. In the summer, nature lovers enjoy the Pacific Crest Trail and the dozens of hiking trails just outside McLeod, as well as swimming and boating. On our second day in town, Athena and I head to the McLeod River. We park at the Lower Falls, which is less than eight miles from town, and follow a paved trail upstream. The trailhead starts at a staircase that leads down to the river and then past Fowler's campground. Even though it's early, a man and two youngsters already have their fishing rods out. Water cascades over these lower falls, which, according to an interpretive placard, native peoples used to call Nurunwidipam, falls where the salmon turned back. We follow the trail past the fishermen, through Fowler's campground, and into the forest. A quiet settles on us there. Dappled sunlight coming in through the leaf canopy, we hike 20 minutes in comfortable silence. The trail comes out to Middle Falls, where streaks of morning sunlight shimmer off the surface of the water. The air smells fresh and moist, redolent of trees and things growing out of the hard-packed soil. There are rocks everywhere, from big boulders that my daughter scrambles up to small stones that we toss in the water. The water tumbles over the falls, churning and frothing and hurrying away, as if on an urgent mission downstream. This is the best adventure of my life, Athena cries, as we start the short climb to the upper falls. Mount Shasta, solid and imposing and beautiful, surprises us every time we catch a glimpse of her between the trees. We call the mountain girl, says 56-year-old Claudia Ellis, who moved to McLeod five and a half years ago from Fort Bragg, California. 
We say, oh, the girl's calling to us, or the girl's acting up today. People gauge their moods by the mountain. Like Darlene Mathis, Claudia Ellis is one of the new movers and shakers in McLeod. Although her opinions are not always shared, she's vociferously opposed to the controversial water bottling plant that Nestle has been trying to open in McLeod, which some believe will jumpstart a puttering economy. She organized a recent community effort to save the falling down firehouse building, raised more than $9,000, and got residents out on the weekend to hand scrape and repaint the entire building. She's also started the annual dog and pony pet parade where kids and grown-ups dress up their pets and march them down Main Street on Thanksgiving weekend. Athena and I continue our walk and find we can see Mount Shasta from every street. We also stumble upon the enormous wheel that once powered the steam engine at the mill. In the old days, the mill owned the entire town, Ellis tells us. They brought your wood, they even brought your Christmas tree. Mathis later tells us that the mill, which supplied power to the town, shut off the electricity around 11 o'clock. Several cookie-cutter former mill family houses are for sale, and we pass a tree heavy with unharvested apples. The ones that have fallen to the ground have been left there to rot in heaps. One of the frustrations that newcomers voice about McLeod is the leftover mentality that someone else will take care of things. People expect everything to be done for them, one person tells me. We have to do it first so that people can see it be done before anyone steps in to try to do it themselves, says another. We go back to the hotel to change and suddenly we're in a rush. It's time to get ready for the biggest outing of this trip. Athena hurriedly pulls a lavender dress with small red flowers over her head. We're going for a ride on the Shasta Sunset dinner train, which leaves at 6 p.m., but boards at 5.30 p.m. You excited? A crew member asks Athena as she wriggles and hops, barely able to wait her turn to board. We are seated in an elegant wood-paneled dining car. The table is perfectly laid out, down to the rounded scalped butter served in a glass-topped dish. As the wheels churn on the tracks and the train groans forwards, I feel like we're in a Victorian mystery novel. The three-hour excursion includes dinner, dancing, and a rather jarring interwagon walk to the souvenir shop at the back of the train. Many of the couples on board are celebrating anniversaries or birthdays. The mood is festive and lively as we pass through a forest of ponderosa pine, white fir, and incense cedar on the lighted track. When the conductor comes by to check our tickets, he gives Athena's a dozen extra punches just for good measure. Then he throws his hat onto her head and suggests I take a picture. Over grilled prawns with red pepper coulis and fresh mozzarella bruschetta, passengers enjoy the enchantment of a ride back through time. But Jeff Forbes, the 58-year-old owner of the dinner train, tells me the cost of snow removal is so exorbitant that, unlike in previous years, he's planning to close for most of the winter season. From talking to him, I glean that business is not great and that the future of the McLeod Railway Company is uncertain. There's been talk of opening a scenic train ride from McLeod all the way to North Ashland, but Forbes isn't sanguine about that idea. It would be impossible, he says in a voice that brooks no disagreement. The problem is 10 miles of track owned by Union Pacific that the train would run over. According to Forbes, the big guns would never grant his little railway a right of access. 
In the morning of our last day in McLeod, people I don't remember meeting ask Athena if she enjoyed the train ride. The town is so small that everyone knows everyone's business, even ours. And Mathis tells me being friendly is an important part of the culture up here, and that tourists sometimes put the locals off by not responding in kind. People have to remember, being a tourist, that they have to wave and say hello, she says. If you don't wave to people, they're going to think you're mad at them. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's something of a relief to drive back to Oregon. I've learned so much about McLeod in the short time we've spent there, but I'm not sure I understand where the town is heading any better than before I visited. Still, something Claudia Ellis said stays with me. In the summertime, after a day of renovating and selling art, she and her husband knock off early and head to the lake to swim. By dusk, most of the tourists are gone, and it is just the two of them watching the eagle soar and the osprey fight as they dive for fish. We're here in heaven, and we have it all to ourselves, Claudia said. One day, they spotted a black bear on the banks of the lake. It's like magic. We just float in the water. That was Sheeni Parvez with the story of McLeod. In the years since, the most recent census has the town's population down to 1,100. The Nestle water bottling plant? Well, it opened in Sacramento instead in 2009, and Nestle is still trying to sell the defunct McLeod lumber mill that was set for the site. However, according to the McLeod Chamber of Commerce website, the dog and pony pet parade show? Well, that's already scheduled for this November 26th. 2016. And then being bottled up isn't always a bad thing. You can bottle up just about anything. Like instilling your children with passions, especially those that might coax out their natural gifts and defy inhibitions. As it went, for musician Ben Howard. Before launching his career as an acoustic singer-songwriter, Ben Howard grew up in South Devon, England, where his mother's collection of folk records helped instill love for Joni Mitchell, Donovan, and Richie Havens. Howard also developed an interest in surfing, catching his first wave at the age of 11, and heading to the beach whenever he wasn't busy writing music in the folksy style of his influences. While pursuing a journalism degree years later, he briefly moved to New Quay, the surf capital of the UK, where he received class credit for working at a surfing magazine. Howard dropped out of school six months shy of graduation, though convinced by the surf community's enthusiastic response to his music, which despite its acoustic folk sound and beachy vibe, sounded more like John Martin than Jack Johnson, that he should ditch the newsroom and focus on songwriting and surely it was his mother's musical influence that set his talented career afloat. That slow trickle of tunes from a young age that led to his unique style, numerous awards, platinum sales records, and a number one UK album that launched Ben Howard to headliner status. So if you have your own kids or nieces or nephews or friends' kids or whomever, just like a good homemade root beer, Think about what you really put into that bottle because you just might be amazed at what comes out when it matures. From his 2014 album, I Forget Where We Were, this is Ben Howard's She Treats Me Well.
The show this week was produced by me, Russell Silva. I tweet at Russell Silva. Also a solid contribution this week from Sheeny Parvez. She tweets at the real Sheeny P. And you can check her out at justfartsy.blogspot.com. Also, thank you to AJ, who does not tweet, and she is top secret. The Storycast will be back in two weeks with more eclectic stories wrapped in an intriguing theme. The Storycast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to storycastpodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad, and we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. Thanks. Okay, if you're still listening, you're either hanging on every word or your phone's across the room. Irregardlessly, that's my new favorite non-word. Check out chicago.storycastpodcast.com and find out how you can support this show by helping to send me and this show to Chicago in July for Podcast Movement 2016 so I can get better at the show. It's a place to learn and meet and greet the best in the business. It's going to be really, really cool, and I would love it if a few people out there just kind of chipped in and helped support the show by getting to Chicago. Consider it your investment in this show, The Storycast. See more at chicago.storycastpodcast.com.